0: Faith is always the answer to the tension between doctrine and experience. This is a statement from my guest today on the Bible Study Magazine podcast, Dr. Michael Barrett, who is a Christ-loving teacher of the Old Testament to Christ's people. I don't know when you, dear listener, will hear this podcast, but I do know that right now as I record this, there are more ruptures and strains in the body of Christ and in the body politic, the nation in which I at least reside, more than I have ever felt. My experience is telling me that God's Word is not keeping Christians together across political and other lines. My experience seems to be telling me that politics is trumping God's Word as a source of unity for Christians. And that really scares me. It scares me because I don't want to be divided unnecessarily from fellow Christians, and I don't want it to be my fault. The Bible is, as Jesus said about his sayings in the Sermon on the Mount, a rock upon which I can build the house of my life. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in it, in God's Word. So no matter what you're experiencing right now, there's probably nothing better for you than to sit and listen to or watch a bunch of Bible talk or insights into the Bible, or tips on how to read the Bible faithfully, that's what you'll get again today on the Bible Study Magazine podcast. Cling to the rock with me, the one that is higher than both of us. I always say the same words when I start an interview because they are coming right out of my heart. It is a delight and a privilege to have with me today a servant of the church who's worked very hard to serve Christ's body very well. Right before we came on together for this interview, we just prayed and that was what I prayed, that our time in a little interview, a little conversation today would be beneficial for Christ's body. And I learned a long time ago that I don't dare tell all the things that my interview guests have done to serve the body of Christ because there are just too many and I will miss some. So I let them choose what seems most relevant to them. And I'll open then with this question to
1: Dr. Michael Barrett. How do you serve the body of Christ? Well, Mark, currently I serve as the academic vice president, academic dean at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary here in Grand Rapids, Michigan and also am ordained minister in the Heritage Reform Congregations. My primary service has been in education really all my life. I taught for many years at Bob Jones University uh, in the seminary and also in the undergraduate school and then became president of Geneva Reform Seminary, which was a little seminary of the Free Presbyterian Church. And for the last 10 years now, I've been serving in this position And I'm about to make a transition away from the administration, uh, moving away from the deanship and I have been named as Senior uh, Research Professor uh, of Old Testament that will begin at the end of this school year. But primarily my ministry has been in the academics, but also serving the church on an associate uh, level for really the whole tenor of my ministry.
0: Yeah, I, I don't dare ask you, perhaps, to uh, list out all the books you've written. There are so many. Maybe you yourself will forget one, but I'm going to have to dare. Let's have you tell us, what books have you written to serve the body of
1: Christ? Well, my first book was beginning at Moses, and that was really the culmination of what my philosophy of writing has always been. I know there's many that feel that they must be writing from the very beginning of their ministry. Uh, My philosophy was I always want to have some experience in the classroom uh, before I start writing. So my first book came out when I was 49 years old. Uh, That was beginning at Moses, uh, which really reflects one of the great passions of my heart and my ministry uh, to how to discover Christ in the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, Then complete in him, which is really a summary of the benefits that we have in the gospel. And I must say the Lord has used that remarkably in Uh, helping many people understand uh, the truths of the gospel, particularly leading to the assurance uh, of faith. Uh, Then I've written a book on worship, the beauty of holiness. I've written a book on Hosea, the gospel according to Hosea, part of a series. I've written just recently uh, the gospel according to Exodus, uh, which is a biblical theological analysis of Exodus. I did something on Daniel. I've done something on the post-exilic prophets next to the last word, and yeah, a lot of articles here and there and uh, contributions. Dr. Beek and myself have just written a book together on, uh, on holiness, a radical and comprehensive call to holiness. I just saw that today for the first time. So I, I trust the Lord will use all those. There's probably some more, but those are what come to my mind uh, offhand. The Lord has enabled me to have a, a significant writing minister. I'm in the process right now of writing an Old Testament introduction book. Uh, there has not been a conservative one of those written for some years, and so I hope to fill that niche uh, in the next little while. I think you and I both sat under Bob Bell. Is that true? Bob Bell would be my would be my mentor. Yes, uh, I owe, under God. I suppose I owe more to Doctor Bell than any other man on earth.
0: And he may just be the most hilarious uh, seminary professor I ever had. Would you concur with that? (laughs) I I'm putting you on the spot.
1: (laughs) Hilarious? No, I I refer to him and I tell him to his face that I think he's quirky. Uh,
0: Quirkily hilarious. Yes, he just cracked (laughs) me up so often. I'm sorry. I put you on the spot there. I love Dr. Bell.
1: No, that's that's not. Uh, He's a very dear friend of mine. In fact, my last book on Exodus, I dedicated to him. Uh, he means a great deal to me, but uh, he he is he's a little quirk. Uh, he, he is, in, yes. in many many ways,
0: but you know, you listen for a while and at first, you're like, "What in the world is he saying?" And then after a while, you, it just kind of dawns on you: this is brilliant. I why didn't I ever hear this before? That happened to me repeatedly with him, including quite recently, when he honored me by just coming to a lecture that I gave. And I thought, wow, I get to lecture to Dr. Bell. By the way, he has a great book on Old Testament theology: the theological themes of the Old Testament. I think it's called that right. we have have in Lagos. and I'm, I'm sure you have that. Now I do he have, is. Yes. He is known for biblical theology, and that's one of the reasons our alma mater has been known for biblical theology. And yet, there are different definitions of biblical theology, and in this season three of the Bible Study Magazine podcast, that's been coming out. I've asked every single guest, what is biblical theology? I'm I'm gonna ask you in a minute. Um, But I observe that people come at it from somewhat different angles, and I invite you to give your own. So I'm gonna ask you this question, what is biblical theology? But I also have to ask you to incorporate in your answer your excellent progressive revelation illustration, the one that you used in, uh, beginning at Moses about the expanding fish that your son brought home from the uh, grocery store.
1: Right, right. I think you can answer that question really from two perspectives. On the one hand, we can talk about the different methods of biblical theology, and some people will define it in those terms, uh, dealing with the progression of the revelation. Gerhardus boss really approaches uh, the subject from that perspective. Uh, You can look at it thematically, as J. Barton Payne does in The Theology of the Older Testament. Uh, So in regard to methodology, there are different ways of looking at it. But I think the essence is, as we compare biblical theology with systematic theology. I think this goes back to Payne that I saw uh, some years ago in Payne's book, as he compares biblical theology with systematic theology, asking two different questions. That systematic theology answers the question, what is true about God? whereas biblical theology answers the question of what has and how has God revealed that truth? And uh, I, I think that approach really comes to the real essence of it. Uh, in systematic, we are combining things. We're uh, bringing post-revelation into the current text that we're working with. is thematic and is very, very important. And I view in many ways the biblical theology is a tool, not an end in itself, uh, but I think it is a tool to safeguard uh, a proper development of systematic theology. So if I look at it from the nature, I think I think Payne's question there really sums it up quite nicely. Uh, what is true about God? So in systematic theology, we bring in all of the evidence uh, and in biblical theology, what uh, what has God revealed? And very often God reveals things progressively. Now there's many different definitions and understandings of what we mean by progressive revelation. There are some that would regard progressive revelation from uh, from incomplete to complete. Some would see it from partial to complete. Some would see it from, uh, from wrong to right even, going that far. But I would define progressive revelation as always going from a general understanding of something to a specific understanding of something. That the more revelation is given, we get more and more details concerning that truth. But all of that truth is encompassed in really the very first revelation. The example that you're referring to, uh, I I suppose I'll never forget this, when my uh, younger son was just a toddler. I remember he went to the grocery store with his mother and he came back uh, with this little plastic egg. And I said, where did you get that? And he said, well, he he, he spent this quarter, it cost him a quarter uh, in one of those machines that they have at the supermarket stores to seduce children into uh, behaving themselves, I guess. But he says, Dad, what do you see what this does? I said, what does it do? And uh, inside was a little fish. I'm not sure what it was made of. But he said, if you put this fish in water, uh, it's going to expand. It's going to grow. So we tried it. We got a little baking dish and we put some water in it and put that little fish in the, uh, in the water. And sure enough, the next morning, uh, that fish had expanded. And I was able to see on that fish uh, some things that I previously did not see. I could see a little mouth. I could see the eyes. I could see all the little scales on that fish. Uh, as it expanded, I saw more and more details. At first, I, I, I was upset with my son for wasting a quarter on that, uh, that little toy. In but 1980s that, dollars, that was a lot. Oh, yes. I mean, I, I told him I taught three classes for that quarter, right? <laughs> uh, that, that was big money back in those days. Uh, And, but I said, you know, that's a classic example of progressive revelation. All those scales were there before I could see them. The eye was there before I could see it. The mouth was there before I could see it. But as it expanded, more and more of those details became became clear. Uh, And that's exactly what happens in progressive revelation. Uh, God gives the general statement. And then in the next revelation, there's a new wrinkle, a new piece of information that's given. Uh, that helps us understand more and more and more until we have the culmination of that. And I've often joked to this day, I regret not putting uh, that little fish in the bathtub. Uh, we may have found Jonah in there, perhaps, who knows? Excellent. Uh, but, but that's a classic example, I think, of what we mean by progressive revelation. But it is interesting as well. I, I don't want to fall on the trap of saying that everything in the Old Testament is revealed progressively. Or when we look at the Old Testament revelation, there are certain doctrines and certain truths that I know more about from the Old Testament than I do the New Testament. Most of what I know about creation comes from the Old Testament, not the New. Most of what I know about the holiness of God comes from the Old Testament and not the New. Uh, So I can't put everything within that particular category, uh, that everything is revealed that way. Uh, Sometimes the full orb is given to us right off the bat. Uh, But it is, I think, a, a very important way that God chooses to reveal Uh, truth in the Old Testament.
0: That was an excellent answer, and I, I hear in you the instincts of the academic and of the shepherd, a little of the lilt of the preacher and the attention to the kind of illustrations that will connect with people, and there's one that I'm sure has connected over the decades because it is so excellent. And I just want to draw attention for our listeners. You know, We've heard all these definitions of biblical theology and they were all good, right? I, I don't disagree with anything anybody said. I thought yours was especially elegant and one way that it was helpful was not just that illustration of the fish, not just that great point about uh, not all revelation being progressive, that was really helpful too, but I really liked how when you talked about biblical theology, you set it in contradistinction to systematic theology, not contradiction, but and they do overlap in ways, they both use each other. You can't not do it that way when you're going from general to particular. Um, or from less information to more, whatever uh, you know, analogy you, you want to give. But I think it's especially helpful to say, okay, how do we define this somewhat amorphous thing that does get used differently by different theologians and writers, biblical theology? It's helpful to set it in contradistinction to systematic theology. Now, you are an Old Testament guy, and yet you quickly acknowledge in Beginning at Moses that, and I'm going to quote you here, from Genesis to Malachi, the reader encounters hard sayings, obscure details, unfamiliar and enigmatic expressions, forgotten customs, family trees with unpronounceable names, and detailed laws that have no immediately discernible application or relevance to modern life. You wrote, much of the Old Testament seems to have no apparent value or purpose. So why, Dr. Barrett? You've taught Old Testament for all these decades. Why do you think God revealed himself in this way? Uh, You know, the New Testament is, as Peter says, hard to be understood enough already. Why give us a harder testament?
1: Well, I I think it teaches us certain things about God. I think it shows us, first of all, that God, in his word, addresses every aspect and every facet uh, of life. Uh, particularly when we look at some of these things that do appear to be outdated. Let's let's face it. If I do some of the things that the Old Testament says, I'm in violation of the book of Hebrews. I can't go around sacrificing animals anymore. Uh, That's outdated. We don't do that. Uh, At at the same time, there are what we call the civil laws that uh, were culturally bound, uh, were temporally dictated, and time changes. But I think we have to look at it from the standpoint that, number one, God wants us to think through these things. Uh, And of all the things that God could have said, why did he say that? If I believe in the verbal inspiration of scripture, I have to take it seriously, uh, that everything there is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness. And if I'm not seeing it, then all that means is I'm not seeing it. Uh, Then I have to get in there and discern why it is of all the things God could have said. Why did he say this? Why do we have all those genealogies? Uh, Why do we have all of these laws that tell me not to round up the corners of my beard when I shave and this, that, and the other thing? Not to boil a kid in his mother's milk. That seems to be so irrelevant. But if we keep this in mind, I I, I try to make this clear to students that while it is true that the ancient setting uh, of the Old Testament scriptures does not equate to the modern setting in which we live now, there's a contrast between the then and the now. Uh, And that's true for the New Testament as well, by the way. There is a difference between the then and the now uh, of church life, of Christian life. But while there's a difference in the setting, there is a universal truth and there's a timeless truth that looks one way in this context, looks another way in a different context. Now I'm not talking about situational ethics. I'm talking about the fact that truth, the application of truth is going to look different depending upon the historical setting and it is for us then to look at that historical setting what can i learn about uh, the culture what can i learn about the uh, what was going on in, in the history that would cause the canonical we, make it, we we talk about historical context canonical context what was going on in history that caused god that made god say what he said in this uh, canonical revelation uh, and as we look at that then we extract the we extract the general truth and truth is timeless, and truth is universal. And then we wanna apply that truth into the circumstance in which we uh, live in making the application. The application of truth is gonna be multifaceted, but the truth itself uh, is singular. And it is for us then to look, and it reminds me then, when I see all these specific contexts in which God was dealing with Israel in the wilderness and whatever else, uh, that his word is to affect every single area of my life. Uh, and we need to be able to, uh, I, I say, discern from that history what the truth is and then how that truth applies uh, to the current and modern setting. Uh, but God wants us to think, you know, God wants us to think through these uh, things and it n- never hurts to think. Uh, some things are going to be crystal clear. Other things are going to require the scholar, if you will, to help it. God has given teachers to us as his gift right, uh, to help 4. us understand those historical contexts. Uh, that will then uh, show the application. Uh, But when I read those genealogies, for instance, come on, name after name and write, who can pronounce them? Uh, It's one of those sections where when we come to our Bible reading with my wife and I, and we spend most of our time laughing at the way she reads those names, Uh, it's difficult. But when you put that in the context, why in Chronicles? Well, here's the covenant promise. Uh, and the nation has been scattered. And where's Judah? The promise has to come through Judah. Where's this king? And everything seems to be, but now here's the genealogies. Bing, 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 bing. God knows exactly where Judah is, and it's not without significance. Then I turn the page from Chronicles to Matthew, and here we go again. Here comes Jesus, right? So there's a redemptive purpose, uh, but we have to think through those. So they are difficult for sure. Uh, But if we believe in inspiration and that everything is there going to be profitable for doctrine all those things that Paul says it is, then there has to be a reason uh, why it's there.
0: Now, you wrote in uh, Beginning at Moses, whereas in theory Christians affirm belief in the Old Testament, just like you were talking about, we believe it's inspiration. In practice, you said, our frustrations with the Old Testament drive us to more familiar and more obviously devotional texts. You said these kinds of texts are good, but you said when believers ignore a lot of the Old Testament, the majority of the Bible, they miss the blessing of finding precious nuggets of truth that are just as vital for modern Christians as they were for Old Testament believers. Now, I'm going to get practical here. I've believed this and tried to incorporate it into my study of the Bible over and over for 20-plus years. So why was it, Dr. Barrett, still difficult for me to understand the last time I read through the, the prophets in the Old Testament?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure I can answer the question as to why you do understand. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I understand, understand the difficulty that we're talking about here. And I think it develops, we almost develop a canon within a canon. Uh, I, I believe in all the canon, but as far as my practical use is concerned, let's go to Romans. Let's go to these right. books. So, so so familiar. And again, I think it requires, again, putting the things in the historical context. These prophets were, uh, were reformers. Uh, they were preachers of the gospel. They were preachers of repentance, and uh, they're they're trying to get everything to go back to the fundamental laws of Moses. So part, part of, I think, the reason we don't understand the prophets is because we don't understand Moses. Uh, if we begin with Deuteronomy particularly, it's almost that every prophet that opens up his sermons says, let's let's turn today to Deuteronomy chapter 27. Yeah. Uh, and that's the biblical foundation as they were reformers. So I think we give up too soon, Mark. I think we just give up too soon. Uh, and if we realize what these prophets are designed to do, and the the New Testament tells us that they were, preaching the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. So that tells me if I'm not seeing it, I'm not looking at it correctly. Uh, And let's let's just not give up too quickly on it uh, and see why they're saying what they're saying and put it in the historical context when they tell us what kings they ministered during. Uh, Well, let's go back and look at what those kings were doing. Uh, Why is it that uh, Amos does what he does at Bethel and at Dan? All right, because I go back and I can see what was going on with Jeroboam uh, at the very beginning there, and it makes it makes perfectly good sense. So I think we sometimes try to take them in isolation without putting within the context of the whole historical development uh, of the redemptive history. Uh, but yeah, it, it does take some thought and it takes it takes working through it. I'm not opposed, right. I say, to looking at, at the more familiar text. I, I, I find them to be precious uh, as well. But... There, there's a wealth of information. Again, this is, if if of all the things, this I find myself being caught by this statement very often, when I can't understand what it is. Of all the things God could have said, why did He say that? Right? Of all that He could have said, so why does He tell me three times, for instance, not to boil a kid in his mother's milk? I must have never in my life been tempted to do that. Uh, there's one sin that I'm going to be free of on the judgment day. I've never been tempted, right? But there's more to it than just a dietary instruction uh, or humanitarian. There's a there's a religious principle there that when I put that in the context, yeah, I, I think one of the, you know, that one of the greatest arguments against bringing the world into the church is not boiling a kid in his mother's milk. Uh, that was a Canaanite practice. That was how they worshiped. And the Lord says, you're not going to do that. You're not going to bring the world into the worship of the true God. So, yeah, but it requires some thought. It requires sure. some thought. Yeah,
0: yeah I, I occasionally get, uh, for various reasons, people um, hear uh, some of my teaching and they, they come away thinking that I am opposed to Bible study because there are things I'm trying to make accessible. Um, and I I'm the editor of Bible Study Magazine, right? I've got it right here. I'm all for Bible Study. And I didn't say what I said facetiously about struggling to understand the prophets. And I, I just said it honestly, kind of put myself out there. Okay. I appreciate your answer. You're exactly right. Uh, I think what you're reminding me and our listeners for the podcast is that, okay, the way I would view it is I contend to keep in my mind, the necessary context for those precious passages, and for me, the the whole New Testament. I can remember, in general, where was Paul when he wrote this? To whom was he writing? What was the setting of Jesus in these periods that the Gospels cover? But it does just take extra study and, uh, you know, and, and even redoing a study I've done maybe 15 years previous, for example, in the book of Amos that I remember really digging into one year and feeling like, OK, I understand this. You know what? Time has passed. And I've forgotten some of those sure. details, as simple as I have to remind myself, OK. Uh, this is where Amos was from. This is who he's speaking to. That is hard work. And yet I can go through all the prophets as I just did in my, you know, audio Bible listening for this year. That's what I happen to be doing next year. I'm planning to read a physical book but this year, audio Bible. And because I didn't have all those things top of mind, there were whole sections of the prophets that, you know, it just, it just wasn't all connecting with me. So what you're, what you're issuing to me and to others is just a call for Bible study and I say, amen.
1: Yeah, and I think Proverbs, I think of Proverbs 2, uh, in the search for wisdom. And Solomon there compares the search for wisdom to seeking for treasure, uh, for digging for silver. Uh, these are treasures, these are wonderful things, but you just don't shuffle along and stumble over hidden treasure. Uh, you just don't f- stumble over silver. Uh, you have to dig for it. Uh, but the reward uh, is going to be the fear of God and the knowledge of God, and that's what it's all about amen yeah
0: I, I I've I've used that illustration often with young people you know what if I stuck a twenty dollar bill or now in twenty twenty one dollars a hundred dollar bill underneath your chair I'm speaking to this group and I said whoever finds it gets it go you know they would just go scrambling sure. and I whenever I give that illustration I really do think to myself do I really do that with my own Bible all too often I do not. Okay. I'm so encouraged, though, by so many people that I run into who share my, like, I believe help my unbelief approach to this, that I do believe that the words of God, even in those obscure portions of the Old Testament, contain those important nuggets of truth and application for me, truth about God, truth about myself, truth about my neighbor, and I every time that, that um, uh, that vision is set up for me that you can get these good things in them, their hills. My heart reaches out to it. Yes, that's what I want. Now, you wrote, and you know, this is sort of old hat for. Uh, thankfully for a lot of Christians here, but it's still really important to say whether you need to be reminded of this truth or you really don't understand it yet. You wrote, Dr. Barrett, Christ is the key that unlocks the meaning of the entire Bible. He is the central person and the unifying theme. I'm glad to say that's a more commonly understood truth than it was, I think, in my church circles growing up. But I wanna ask about this in a specific way. Let's talk about Bible interpretation. Um, you taught at my alma mater, our alma mater, and I heard many students from just before my time tell me what an impact your teaching had on them. But I only heard you a few times, and one of those times, I'm pretty sure, I want to say you mentioned Genesis 49 and Jacob's somewhat obscure statement in his deathbed blessing to Judah, which in the King James reads: the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come and unto him shall be the gathering uh, shall the gathering of the people be this okay. is one of those classic passages where translations go every which way and and here's my question you have undeniably seen the centrality of christ to interpretation of the entire Bible, and in case your major calling here, the Old Testament. When do you feel justified in letting that centrality sort of nudge you toward the interpretation or the translation that best connects to that theme? And when do you work to guard yourself from getting unduly swayed by considerations yeah. external to the grammar and the lexicography, the you know even the Ugaritic cognates or whatever that help you discern the meaning of that
1: passage? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. I, I, I want to see Christ and the redemptive message wherever it is, and I don't want to see him where he's not. Uh, if if we appeal to those passages and just make stuff up, it's going to weaken uh, the, the whole argument. Uh, and if, when I speak of Christ, and let me you know try to clarify this as well. I think when I make that statement, uh, maybe I mis, misunderstood. I'm, I'm not saying that statements and passages that reveal the person of Christ or the work of Christ specifically are, are what we're looking for. I'd like to expand that message of Christ to be the whole redemptive message. I would argue that the, the the purpose of Scripture and the theme of Scripture is redemptive, it's reversing the curse, all right? How is the curse of sin going to be reversed? And it's the gospel. Now, the gospel is Christ, but there are other aspects and elements of the gospel that we have to incorporate as well. Uh, So the need of the gospel, when I find those passages that are dealing with sin and human deficiencies, well, that's the need of the gospel that Christ is the answer for. Uh, We have to, how often have we heard this even in our evangelism uh, lessons, you got to get somebody lost before you can get them saved. Uh, Well, God is working that way. So here's the human deficiency that makes the gospel necessary. Uh, and here is the here's the solution to that, uh, the whole redemptive purpose. And when I speak of Christ I, I, as the key, it's the redemptive message in Christ, not just whatever isolated verse I can see has his name or a title or some aspect of his work. But one of the questions that I, I, I pose, and I, I put this before students all the time, is I come to a passage, the first question that I ask is how and in what way does this text contribute to the redemptive message of the Bible? How does this contribute? Is it man's need? Is it the redemption? Is it the repentance? Is it faith? Is it whatever? How does this contribute to the redemptive message? As a covenant theologian, I would argue that all history uh, is redemptive in its focus, that from th- the fall of man until the consummation of the age, that God has a purpose and God has a plan to reverse that curse. And I, I love Voss. If you've not read Voss's Biblical Theology, you know, that's a must on everyone's reading list, I think. Uh, the influence that Voss has had is in Biblical Theology is really quite profound. Uh, but Voss would argue that, yes, history is redemptive and the scripture is the interpretation of that redemption. So if history is going toward the consummation of the age, where the curse is going to be reversed, and now the scripture is showing me every step of the way how that is going to be accomplished and how it's, yeah, uh, to me that is what brings my focus upon Christ. He is the gospel, but there are components of the gospel message, right, that are included uh, in that that has to be taken into consideration uh, as well, if I'm clear in what I'm saying there.
0: Yeah, that, that's excellent. I, I I think how you started is kind of what I was aiming for, and I you know I knew you believed this that we want to find Christ where He is in all His multi, multifaceted glory, and in the more specific passages that really name Him directly, Isaiah fifty three being one of them, and in the in the hints where you only get to see a tiny little glimpse, maybe we we want to see Him wherever wherever He is, and we don't, he is. To him, yeah.
1: we don't want to we don't want to impose on the it. text. Where he's not, right. Yeah, and, and the more I know him, the more I know him, the more I can see him. Uh, I I don't I'm, I'm, I like to deer hunt, right? I'm a deer hunter. Uh, I don't have to see the whole deer to know that there's a deer there. Uh, I don't have to. I, I've been married now for 50-odd years, uh, and I, I know my wife, and I can pick her out in a crowd if all of I see is the side of her head. I don't have to see all of her to see her, right? And so the more familiar we are with who Christ is and what he's done, and why he has done what he has done, uh, then I think the greater uh, ability we can have uh, to to find him. Now, if I can just go back to the Shiloh thing, I I think that's an unhappy translation. I don't think Shiloh is a proper name there. I would rather translate it than transliterate it as the authorized version uh, does. Uh, If I translate it, the scepter will not depart from Judah until he come to whom it belongs. Uh, And you can parallel that with Ezekiel chapter 21 when the diadem is removed, the diadem is removed in the Babylonian situation, and it's going to be restored when it comes to whom it belongs, playing upon Genesis 49. So it ought to be translated at that point rather than transliterated. Yeah,
0: I just checked the translations this morning, and if I remember right, I do think the ESV and a number of other contemporary translations take it the way that you're proposing there. And I actually couldn't recall exactly which interpretation you took, and I didn't happen to see it as I was looking in your books recently, so I didn't say which one you took. <laughs> that makes perfect sense to me. I just remember the, the question coming to my mind, okay, well, like, you know, I want this to be Jesus. Wouldn't that be cool that Jacob is predicting Jesus? Because this is the line of Judah. It would make a lot of sense. I want to know Jesus. and want to see Jesus. But I also recognize, in myself the desire for, I don't know, you know, a nifty connection that others don't see, let's say, or um, I sense myself being nudged in a, a theological direction when I really want the text to be determining the direction that I go. Well, sure. Not that you can really separate those things finally. Yeah,
1: it, it must, but that's a classic example as well of our progressive revelation. When we start Genesis, I know that the curse reverser is going to be into humanity, the seed of the woman. And then I learned that it's going to be of the line of Shem, that I know he's going to be of uh, the family in the tribe of of Abraham. And by the time I I come to the end of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, I know not only that the curse reverser is going to be a man, that he's going to be a Semite, that he's going to be uh, of Israel, but he's also of the very tribe of Judah. Uh, And we know that much about who the curse reverser is in the very first book of the Bible. That's progressive revelation. More details, I say, are being given.
0: And if anybody wants to know more about that Joseph-Judah story in Genesis, was it 37 to 40 or 41 or so? I'm trying to remember here. Um, One of your students, who was a mentor of mine, Brian Smith, wrote his dissertation on that and produced a a Bibliothica Bibliothica Sacra article on it a number of years ago, Dallas Seminary's journal. It's really, really great stuff. You mentioned a moment ago that you are a covenant theologian, and I happen to know that you spent not a few years among those of a more dispensationalist bent and you had some gracious words in beginning at moses which is where i'm focusing most of this interview so far we'll talk about some of your other books that are on the screen behind me in a minute but you had some gracious words for people who didn't take don't take the same you know covenant theological perspective that you do you just said that the covenants of scripture are important to all christians you know no matter what their interpretive tradition is so what do you think is the minimum that whether you're a dispensationalist or a covenant or any of the varieties that are sort of in between, what do you think is the minimum that they all must affirm? And what do you think is the maximum that they can affirm together? I, the reason I ask that latter portion is that I sense that the dispensationalist and covenant theology sides are kind of coming together, and that biblical theology is a, a fair bit of the glue that now I hear both sides talking about the one story of Scripture and about the, you know the reversing of the curse, the redemptive themes that occur in the Bible. So again, what's the minimum about the covenants that you know both sides generally speaking must affirm, and what's the maximum that you think they can affirm?
1: Yeah, that's, I'm not sure, because I I, I can't really talk about a covenant uh, and a dispensationalist. I think there are, I I don't know who who said it, I heard somebody say once there's as many dispensationalists as as there are different kinds of golden mustards, right? They're all all a little different, and I don't want to say something about ones, that's not what I believe, because that's been said to me, right? You're a covenant theologian, you believe this? I don't believe that. You're a covenant theologian, you believe, I don't believe that. Uh, so we have all these straw men that we tend to build up as uh, on the other side. I think the the happy thing is, as you've observed, uh, that there is more in agreement than perhaps either side want to admit uh, in, in terms of uh, the, uh, the the message of of Scripture. And I, and I have indeed have have seen that. Uh, I think if if I could sum up any what, what I see to be the primary difference between the two. Uh, is where where covenant theology tends to view all those institutions and installations of the covenant as being the same covenant, the covenant of grace, just different installments progressively uh, revealed, and therefore a continuity, emphasizing the continuity of those covenants, whereas at least in traditional dispensationalism, uh, those covenants have been viewed as entities in and of themselves, uh, that here's covenant with Noah, all right, that Didn't work, so now let's try, here's one with Abraham, all right? And then we go to Moses, they rejected Abraham, and and on it goes. Where there's a discontinuity. Uh, I think that's probably, in in my mind, the the key difference between the two. But I'm not sure I can say what's the minimum. I think we all have to see that they're dealing with God's redemptive message. Uh, We can agree on that. Uh, But how it fits together uh, in in terms of uh, its current manifestations in the covenant of grace. As a covenant theologian, I would argue there's one covenant of grace, right? Uh, and installed with, Abra- with with Adam and with Noah, with Abraham, with David, with Moses, with Israel, uh, all the same thing. Uh, and grace is all the way through and not just something that begins with the New Testament or what, whatever uh, it's supposed to begin with. And again, I don't wanna characterize because I, I know I would. What I just said there, there are many disp- dispensationalists. That was that's not what I believe. Uh, it's hard to say. There's too many,
0: right. too many factors. Well, I I think you bring up the the key terms. From for me, uh, too long to tell my personal story with regard to these views. But I'll just say that I kind of came out of school a little confused about them, and a little bit glad that I was. I I don't think I was indoctrinated in one specific, you know, tradition, covenant theology or dispensationalism. I think I can step back and kind of see value in both, and that's what helps me see that I think the two are coming together. But when I started to ask myself, why do people care about this so much, and it's something I kind of have a hard time wrapping my mind around, I'm much more excited about the one story of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, than I am about parsing out some of these uh, questions. But I do think it's valuable, and I think that your words continuity and discontinuity are the key. that book from a number of years ago. I think that was the title, Continuity and Discontinuity, and each of them is a sliding scale, right? So uh, any given dispensationalist or covenant theologian may see a certain number of continuities and discontinuities between the old and new covenants uh, between the people of God in the uh, former times and the people of God now. Um, I think I do think that um, both sides are still evangelical, right? They're still saying that grace is what saves, but they have to parse out some of these questions for various reasons not probably worth getting into in this interview because I want to move on to your Hosea volume, and I want to talk about your contribution to the Lexham Context Commentary. So let's let's talk about your book on Hosea. You wrote—I've got it back up here on the Uh, screen—you wrote about Matthew's famous use of the out of Egypt, I have called my son uh, statement that is in Hosea. Uh, In Matthew, you said, Matthew is saying there is something about God's loving deliverance of Israel from Egypt that is analogous to God's loving protection of Christ from Herod. I wondered, you know, you've got a biblical theological emphasis, you've you've got skills in that area, knowledge in that area, you see progressive revelation. Um, I have stumbled a bit over that passage in the past. Um, I, I, my faith is not hurt by it, I'm just kind of curious and you know, it's a little troubling sometimes, okay, did, did the New Testament writers you know, use the Old Testament according to the sort of historical, grammatical, interpretive methods that I've been taught? I feel that biblical theology and that progressive revelation idea has helped me come to some of these fulfillment formulas with better tools for understanding them. And I just wanted to check with you who've been at this longer. Would you say that a biblical theological view of the Bible helps us process these and other, you know, fulfillment formulas? And if so, how so?
1: Yeah, I I think very definitely so. Uh, I I think the tendency is that we, we look at how a New Testament uh, writer interprets or uses an Old Testament passage, and we don't see it. Uh, and so therefore we have some that would argue, well, he's under inspiration, and so under inspiration he can change uh, the text to mean whatever he wants it uh, to mean under inspiration. Uh, I, I would oppose that view uh, because that's that's messing with truth. If it was truth in the Old Testament, it's truth in the New Testament. Uh, and while, to go back to what I said earlier, while the truth itself is universal and timeless— the application of truth uh, is going to be multifaceted. And I think that's sometimes is what we see. And I think as an example, we see in the uh, Hosea 11.1 1 and Matthew use of that. Uh, when you, you look at the biblical theological analysis of Hosea, he's referring there to the Exodus for sure. But as you look at the way he uses Egypt, uh, earlier in the book, it's Assyria. Uh, very specifically, that is designated as Egypt. So Egypt becomes a type, if you will, a representative, if you will, of those forces, of those peoples that are hostile uh, to God and God's purpose, uh, and used figuratively from that standpoint. Uh, And when I look at the way Matthew uses that uh, text, I think he's understanding Hosea expressly, he's understanding how Hosea used uh, that particular reference. And the placement of that text in Matthew uh, according to Matthew's use of it, out of Egypt have I called my son is not Joseph coming back out of Egypt, back to Palestine, but it says leaving Judah to go into Egypt. And in the context of the birth narrative there, uh, Egypt becomes the, the salvation place. It becomes the refuge of Jesus, not the place of bondage. It was Judah. So it was Judah that uh, in Matthew's use of the term, of the verse, really is Egypt. So out of Egypt have I called my son, out of Herod's Egypt I've called my son, he finds solace in Egypt. So if you put that within the context, and I have to go back and say, you know, Matthew really understood how uh, Hosea was using uh, the term, but it's biblical theology, yes, that looks at that, uh, says, all right, here's how Hosea used Egypt, and Matthew is using it the same way, different application, it's not Assyria, it's Judah, but uh yeah, I think that answers the question quite nicely. So there is something you, analogous.
0: You uh just used the word application a moment ago and I can't miss the opportunity to say the other real one thing I just really remember from the one class I had with you. You gave a couple lectures in a in a class called ethics that met Monday nights and I think um we had different professors come in just about every single week uh, and you did a week or two I maybe. That. I I really remember you saying, and here I am, a senior in a Christian college, um, I'm in that period of life when, of course, you're evaluating. Am I going to uphold the rules, the lifestyle standards that my parents handed to me? And I and a lot of others of my generation were kind of pushing back against that, saying, as I think lots of young people want to do, I don't want to have to follow the rules that my parents gave. And I saw some people swinging the pendulum, I think, too far. And saying that it's wrong to have any rules, and you just said something like, you know, if if you're gonna if you read your Bible and you don't come out with any rules for your own life, then you're missing it. You're you're not applying the Bible. You're not finishing the process of interpretation, which actually must result in life change. Does that sound like something you would say? Did I remember that right all these years?
1: Yeah, it sounds like something I would say. I must say I I, I don't remember half the stuff I say, but yeah, I, I do believe <laughs> that. Uh, I, I do believe that that. The Scripture is our uh, it's it's our guide for life. It's not only what we believe, but how we are to live what we believe. And if it doesn't translate into my lifestyle, then Christianity is just a theory. It's just a theory. Uh, when in reality, Christianity has to be a way of life, and the map for that way of life is is the Scriptures. Uh, so yeah, it, it it must be applied, must be applied. Amen.
0: Amen. You know, just recently, I won't give the specifics, but I was telling a Christian friend of mine, actually a pastor nearby, um, he was asking for some counsel on a difficult issue that he was facing. And I said, I feel your pain because what I'd really like to have is a Bible statement, you know, just telling me what to do. Uh, this is one of those situations where I got to take a lot of different Bible passages and apply them to what seems to me to be unique, even at least in my life, unprecedented situation. And I feel at a loss when I don't have a rock to hold on to. It's one of those cases where I do think, you know, legitimately the Bible left, I'm being vague here, but, you know, left a choice open. And so much, it's so much easier to just trust the Lord and say, okay, Lord, you said to do this, I'm going to do this. I, I'm grateful for that kind of emphasis that I got out of that class. And that one comment from you that stuck with me all these years. Two more questions for you, Dr. Barrett. Uh, one about your Hosea book, and one about your Zechariah contribution in the Lexham Context Commentary. We'll get there in just a second. In your Hosea book, You wrote, Hosea, in company with all his prophetic colleagues, preached the gospel of salvation. You cited 1 Peter 1, which you've mentioned in this interview also, uh, as a support, you know, where Peter says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully about this salvation, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. You wrote, Hosea knew the gospel. And it's clear from the book that bears his name that he lived it and preached it passionately and powerfully to his generation. I just want to pitch you a softball pitch here. How did Hosea preach the gospel? What did he say? Where in the book do we see this evangelistic preaching from this prophet?
1: Yeah, I think again if we can go back to what my basic presupposition is, that the scripture is going to be developing the redemptive purpose. My question then, interpretationally, as I open up a book or any passage, is what and how does this contribute to the redemptive message? So, what is the need? Well, you can't read Hosea without being impressed, depressed uh, with the description of sin. Uh, here's this, and he uses his own relationship with Gomer uh, as an example of the relationship between God and his people. Uh, and the people could see the, uh, what Gomer was doing to Hosea. And Hosea could say, if, if you can see what Gomer's doing to me, that's what you're doing uh, to God. Uh, the, the deception and the adultery, spiritual adultery, the, the, the great human deficiency. So you, you can't read Hosea without being, I, I say, cognizant of the fact that he's focusing upon man's sin, the need. The need of that, Uh, and then you come to uh, the great passages dealing with repentance. You come to chapter fourteen as he gives the way back home. Uh, Here's here's the invitation to repent, uh, to turn from your sins. This is the only this is the only way. Uh, You know, prophets. You know, if if you look typically at if if there's disaster, there's judgment that's coming, and Hosea was right on the brink of of the national disaster. we try to run away from disaster, but the the biblical solution and Hosea's solution was no, you you don't you don't try to escape it. You come to God. You go to the source of where that judgment is going to come from. Uh, and I, I think you do have some great passages dealing with Christ specifically. If I, is it Hosea chapter three? I think it is that ends with a reference there to David. I would take David there, the the, the king, uh, not a reference to historic David, but the greater David that's coming. Uh, that. Uh, would would be the Messiah himself. So both of what he says about the need for the gospel uh, and the solution to man's deficiency is faith and repentance. What what more does a gospel preacher do? Yeah.
0: Good, good. We We need to hear this. We need to hear that sometimes obscure to us, minor prophets are saying something that's not just consistent with New Testament revelation, but really is the same. He's saying the same stuff to a different audience in a different circumstance, but he's preaching repentance and the grace of God, which is what you and I are privileged to preach even this day, even in this interview. You contributed comments on the book of Zechariah to the Lexham Context Commentary, which I've also got up on my screen, picture of. I did a lot of work on that project myself, I think mainly before you came on. I helped my pastor, our mutual friend Tom Parr, get a role as editor on the project when I changed roles to come to Bible Study Magazine. I think Tom is the one who signed you on, and I was very happy to see that. I I very much think of the Lexham Context Commentary as a worthy and even important and new kind of biblical commentary. So could you tell our listeners about the unique structure of the Lexham Context Commentary and offer maybe an insight into Zechariah that came to you through having to take that particular approach to commenting on the
1: book? Uh, Yeah, a couple of things. If I could just back up and say, this little thing that, that bothers, we, we talk about the minor prophets. I'd rather just refer to them as the shorter prophets. Uh, there's nothing minor about them, but so I get that off my chest. All right, they're the shorter prophets. And Zechariah is one of them. And I suppose of all of the shorter prophets, uh, Zechariah would be my favorite. Uh, from the standpoint, not only of the Messianic passages, uh, extremely Messianic, uh, and uh, dealing with, the ultimate purpose of God in uh, redeeming his people and eschatological concepts, and it, it's just full of everything. I, I love the prophet. Uh, but in, in the structure of, of the commentary that I did for you all, uh, I think it's important. I think the very concept of putting things in context and seeing how the flow of thought goes from, uh, from paragraph to paragraph is, uh, is extremely important. And I think so often we tend to, uh, even in reading a particular book, uh, we have our chapter a day and we read that and we forget about that and come to the next day and we read that and forget about what, and and we don't get the whole picture. And I think the contribution that that commentary structure is, it is keeping things uh, in an ongoing ongoing structure in in terms of the context that uh, everything is being built upon. I think that's very, very important. Rather than just keeping texts in isolation, uh, one from the other, uh, I, I will confess that there were a couple instances in the book that I, I surrendered my conscience to. Because uh, you I stuck with the outline
0: it. that you were provided instead of I, I outlining it the way the you would have liked to. <laughs> I yeah, I stuck that stuck might be my I fault. I. Can't remember if I, I don't think I outlined Zechariah. We probably had a contractor do that. So blame that nameless person. I'm so sorry you had to <laughs> violate your conscience.
1: That's all right. But uh, so I made it clear, I think, in the, in the writing that this actually goes up here, but that's beside the point. Uh, so a little different opinions as to what the structure is. But the concept, I think, is remarkable. And if we can learn to read, if we can read these things in one setting, I, I think that would that would help. Uh and the the, the structure of, of that whole commentary series, from what I've seen, uh, is is fostering that particular idea, which is going to bring the message of that book home uh, more clearly than just looking for a little nugget uh, here and there that we can that we can latch onto. But I, I enjoyed the project, yes.
0: Yeah, good. I'm really glad that you enjoyed it. And I'm glad that uh, I'm sorry, again, that you had to suffer through that. We had a number of authors who did that. And of course, that's excellent. Like I was so glad to hear from writers who were saying, well, I don't agree with this outline. It meant they were paying attention and they cared. Yeah. Sometimes we could adjust and sometimes we couldn't. A lot of times a line had to be drawn somewhere at a certain point in the process and sure. you're just stuck. No,
1: I, I did press in- it, but, I, it, but yeah, I said a few times, "How how come this is, yeah, but that's, that's fine. We're all
0: different. It means that in this commentary where you're looking at the big picture, the you know a, a paragraph on the big sections of, of Zechariah or whatever book it is, and then multiple paragraphs of commentary on the subsections and divisions going on down the outline, right. um, you can zoom in to whatever level you want to check on it. And When I was working on this project, I found it to be akin to the Baker exegetical commentary in the New Testament that I've so enjoyed, where there's a little gray box at the beginning of uh, every section that just summarizes that section. And sometimes when I just didn't have time to dive into the exegetical details, what I just right. really needed was a, a gut check, like, okay, this is how I'm seeing this pericope in the Gospel of Luke contributing to you know the overall flow of argumentation. I just need to make sure that I'm just going to touch on this in one sentence in my sermon or my article, I want to make sure that the uh, uh, Daryl Bach in this case, you know, agrees with me, or or maybe I need to adjust to him. That's the kind of thing that I'm looking for. Right. Same with the Lexham context commentary. Yeah. I think it's highly valuable, and again, I'm grateful for your, uh, your contribution to it. Dr. Barrett, I'm grateful for your contribution to my life, as I think that you can tell, even though we've only glanced off each other a couple times. Um, your son is a, a good friend of mine, a highly respected friend, sends me a message oh, about yeah. every three or four years telling me he's prayed for me that day, and How can he encourage me? Yeah, and uh, your impact on me through friends, as I've referenced, has been uh, really rich. And now I get to actually talk with you, and that itself was rich. Thank you for giving your time to my listeners on the Bible Study Magazine podcast, and I look forward to maybe someday getting to talk with you in person. Sounds good. Well, thank you for having me on. You're so welcome coming all the way from sunny Michigan, but making sure to (laughs) insert the word y'all into his interview. You've had Dr. Mike Barrett, folks. Thanks again. Very good. I had a strong personal connection to Dr. Barrett, though I've never met him, a stronger connection than to most of my guests on the podcast. It was an honor and a delight, I think you could tell, to get to have an hour of his insights into the Old Testament. I, Mark Ward, the editor of Bible Study Magazine, am again excited about the next time I get to those Old Testament prophets in my Bible reading. I've got help, too. I've got the Lexham Context Commentary and other work by teachers, such as Dr. Barrett, that. Christ has given to his church. May the Lord help you, too, to study your Bible with the best tools. That's the purpose of Bible Study Magazine, to which you can subscribe at BibleStudyMagazine.com slash subscribe. That's also the purpose of Logos Bible Software. And you can get a great starter pack of Logos tools and books at Logos.com slash Bible Study. It's been an honor to serve you through another episode of the Bible Study Magazine podcast.